Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is podcast number 28, where we're going to put the final death knell to that roughly 1,000-year-long period known as the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. In podcast 27 in this series on world history, we looked at the prelude to the disasters that would unfold between 1300 and 1450 AD. Significantly was the fact that the earth was cooling, which reduced the food production, coupled with a larger population, created widespread famine throughout the European continent. We then looked at the three major disasters, the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death, and the Great Papal Schism. Remember again that by themselves, none of those disasters might have spelled the end for the Middle Ages. It's the fact that all three of them happened within a 40-year time span. Sure, they lasted a lot longer. That only added to the devastation. But the fact that the three major disasters, the Hundred Years' War starting in 1337, the Black Plague starting 10 years later in 1347, and then the Great Papal Schism beginning in 1377. Ironically, again, on the sevens. Amazing that that became seven becomes a lucky number, right? The fact, though, that this happened in a 40-year time span pushed the population to the edge, not only because the disasters were happening all around them, with, again, the fact that The Hundred Years' War was decimating the population, destroying land, destroying harbors. The Roman Catholic Church, not only not able to do anything about it, actually participated in it in an indirect way by backing either England or France as time went on, sometimes switching sides. That horrified the population. Then the Black Plague hits with no explanation as to how one gets it, how to cure it, and why it's devastating the population. Once again, not only does the Roman Catholic Church not have any answers, they're being affected by it. It wasn't the church's fault, but the church was supposed to be the solution for all of society's ills where they would turn to. So strike one was the Hundred Years' War, strike two was the Great Plague, the uh, Black Plague, and then strike three was when the Roman Catholic Church itself split not only into two, but into three. So at the end of podcast 27 in the series on world history, I left you with a question. Who was left for the population to turn to? Who was left to care for the sick, the scared, the frustrated population to turn to? Who would not let the people down? And that who 
was the person speaking to you right here through this podcast? That who was the person listening to this podcast? That's right. It was you. It was me. Commoners. Not people of any significant stature. Uh, No offense to any Roman Catholic higher-ups that might be listening to this podcast, but it was Johnny and Jane Doe, Johnny and Jane Commoner. They were the ones that they would turn to for answers going forward. They would begin to look into themselves for answers. And again, if you imagine the scenario, which was beyond commonplace, of a spouse losing their significant other to the plague, losing a child or two to the Hundred Years' War, and then the rest of the children getting sick with the plague and dying. It is that surviving spouse and their siblings that are going to begin to start questioning everything in order to see if they could cure the plague, much less end the One Hundred Years' War. That's those three disasters is what would reignite the human mind once again with that question daring to ask, how and why? So this wraps up, again, our several podcast-long series on the Middle Ages. We then end by moving with Podcast 28 into what becomes known as the world of the Renaissance. Renaissance, again, as we know, means rebirth. So let's begin to unpack the Renaissance. Sure, we'll cover a few of the common tidbits that the typical World History Survey textbook will give us, but let's dive deeper into the human mind and spirit to see what changed within them that gave us the birth of what we would call the Renaissance. Please keep in mind, too, this overarching principle is the fact that remember that from what we ended the Middle Ages, that time span by and large went from 476 AD to 1453 roughly AD, a roughly 1,000-year-long time period. When I ask my students what age follows the Middle Ages, most of the time before we even get to this part in world history, they'll answer correctly with the Renaissance. And I ask them, any other age that begins roughly right at about the same time? They think about it and they say, wait a minute, isn't that the age too when Christopher Columbus supposedly discovered the Americas? Bingo. It starts the age of world exploration. Keep going. Yeah, that great papal schism, didn't that kick off the Protestant Reformation? The age of Protestantism quickly followed up with the age of the Enlightenment. Ages now are going to be happening so fast that one of the defining characteristics of the Renaissance is that people actually recognize the signs of the new age. They recognize significant changes within their own lifetime. So significant is this that my students generally can see that I can't contain my excitement when I finally can end that period known as the Middle Ages. My gosh, sometimes I feel like I want to take a shower and just wash the Middle Ages off of me because by and large, it was a period where the human mind went dark, hence the term dark ages. Now we're going to start questioning the human mind once again, asking how and why. 
We're going to unpack those documents from ancient history, not to simply re-record them the way Charlemagne's scholars did, but now continue to press those ancient scholars and expand on their ideas. Welcome to the world that is waking up in the age of the Renaissance. So with the Renaissance, let's simply unpack this by starting with what generally is, is accepted as an academic definition of Renaissance. Simply put, it was a flourishing of cultural and educational achievements. Ironically enough, too, that although the Middle Ages largely spread throughout Europe with no known location as to where it started, quote unquote, or where it ended, we do have a birthplace for the Renaissance that is still in the same place in modern day Italy known as the city of Florence. And we'll unpack those reasons why as we move along. But remember, too, that the world's first universities were also founded in the Italian states. Forgive me when I'm saying Italian states, even though the common textbook will refer to this area as Italy. Italy, as we know it today, again, does not actually come onto the world map until the 1860s, during when America's turn itself in half in the American Civil War is when the Italian principalities come together to form the country that we know of as Italy. So again, the Renaissance simply defined as a flourishing of cultural and educational achievements originating in Florence, Italy. As I mentioned earlier, and I can't stress this enough, the changes that we're going to talk about are so sweeping and so significant that people will actually recognize the signs of these changes. To the point that when the Middle Ages roughly ended, you could have taken an individual walking around in 300 BC Persia and transported them to the middle of Rome in 300 AD, 600 years later, and they could have made themselves at home without recognizing any major changes except for the language spoke and perhaps the way the people lived. But they could have picked up and kept right on going. From 300 AD to 1300 AD, you could also have somebody come back in the proverbial time machine 1,000 years later and immediately be able to blend in with society and caught up with all the quote-unquote changes because there were so few, if any. However, as we move into the Renaissance, people will recognize that the world that they're getting old in is definitely different than the world they were born into. And that is going to be a change at a rate of speed that will not only stop as human society advances, but by and large will become, will get faster, go faster and faster to the point, And I don't mean this to be in a kidding way. Imagine taking my uh, grandfather, my mother's father, who is a general surgeon. Imagine taking him on the month before he died, he died in December of 1963. Imagine taking him a month before he died in 1963 and putting him into an operating room in 2013 or 2020. Can you imagine what he would have to learn? All those computers and monitors he has never seen before. Sure, the good old rel the relative of the scalpel will certainly be there. 
but everything else around that doctor, my, my grandfather, would be significantly different. How many of us are frustrated? Go ahead and laugh. I am too, literally as I say it. How frustrated we get when we simply get a new type of cell phone because of how significantly different it is from the last one. Oh, sure, we know how to answer it and say hello. Do we? Is it just a swipe to the right? Or was yours definitely different than the one before where you had to flip it open in order to answer it? right? So these changes, they're going to continue on at a greater and greater rate of speed as we, try, as we continue to march through the centuries. So we defined the Renaissance proper. Now let's look at some of the characteristics. When I said that people were recognizing the signs of a new age, what exactly do I mean by that? Usually students will take that question and say, let's think about that and call it a class. Okay, well, yeah, uh, you listeners have the luxury of going ahead and throwing me on pause or stop entirely. Um, students don't, though, however. But what they see, ironically enough, are characteristics that at the end of the class period, if they think about it, really don't surprise them, even though they might have thought about it a little differently. First off is we're going to see a return to this concept of individualism. There will be a desire for uniqueness, but without the guilt that comes with it, that I might have more money than my neighbor. I might have better clothes, more food than my neighbor. I might dress differently than the person who lives across the street from me. And I'm not going to be shamed into believing that if I have more, I must give it all away so that we're equal that what I produce is the fruits of my labor is what I own. This is what we talk about, this idea of individualism. A second characteristic, humanism. It is going to be human society's return to the study of the self, humanism. Ladies and gentlemen, without humanism, they're never going to find the defining characteristics of the Black Plague and how to avoid it and eventually, perhaps, how to cure it right? You're not going to move in that direction unless you're willing to study the self. These two characteristics by themselves are going to start giving Roman Catholic hierarchies heartburn because of the way that the population is going to seemingly appear to change as they sit right in front of them in the congregation. Thinks that, think that's bad. The first two characteristics, individualism and humanism, how about characteristic number three? Oh, yeah, here we go. The movement to a secular spirit. A secular spirit meaning a move away from a life dominated by theology. Please note, I in no way am trying to imply getting away from theology, getting away from religion, not at all. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, the Roman Catholic faith actually remains strong throughout the age of the Renaissance. The reason why, in some cases, it's mythically believed that the belief in religion plummeted was, number one, because of the Great Papal Schism. A split in three really has a way to drive people away. But secondly, because of the way it kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So important was that Reformation in that age in Europe, that that will become literally a couple of podcasts by itself to explain that away. So a search for explanations, though, a secular spirit, does not mean 
either I have faith or I don't. But maybe I, what the thought is, I can have faith, but I can also educate myself. I can also become smarter. With the secular spirit, this is so involved that there's a two actual tenets that go with this idea of the development of a secular spirit. First off is the move to materialism, which the Roman Catholic Church, of course, will not condone. In fact, will condemn is this idea of being drawn to materialism. Well, how do you get that without this idea of individualism, a desire for uniqueness? But again, it doesn't mean the population is checking in their faith in order to check out individualism and materialism. Not at all. You can have both. Where the Roman Catholic Church is going to find itself running into a lot of problems is with the second part of the definition of a secular spirit, and that is a humankind's search for explanations. The process, ladies and gentlemen, of expanding one's knowledge. And this is where generally I'll have the students literally leaning forward in their chairs when I show them the next phrase that I'm about to say on this podcast. The process of the expansion of knowledge, dot, 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 and the pain that comes with it. That's a lot to take in. A process of expansion of knowledge and the pain, and I mean that truly as pain, that comes with it. By pain, I don't mean irritation. I mean pain, discomfort, significant discomfort. Oh, not physically, emotionally. We all know, folks, that oftentimes victims of abusers, the physical scars of that can heal and go away. But the emotional pain and emotional scars sometimes last a lifetime. That's what we're talking about with this idea of gaining knowledge. The Christian faith, again, will remain strong. But people now are questioning everything. And what I mean by questioning everything and tying that back to the pain that comes with knowledge, let me turn to a worldwide expert as he perhaps explained it in a way that I've ever seen written thus far and not for the uh, first time and certainly not for the last time in order to help my students understand history the expert that I'm turning to, once again, will not be another historian. There'll be somebody outside that academic field. In this case, psychotherapy. You may have heard of the author. If not, I would be willing to bet most of you have heard of the name of the title of his greatest work. The doctor's name is M. Scott Peck and the uh, significant groundbreaking book that he wrote in 1978 was called The Road Less Traveled. And here is where Dr. Peck is explaining the acquisition of a new religion, but it also applies to the acquisition of knowledge, and again, explaining the pain that goes along with it. And to help students understand this, before I read a couple of excerpts here, let me flesh out a way of, by way of example is I ask students, and again, this is they raised, I asked them to raise their hand 
but I tell them that under no circumstances will I call on them because this can not only be painful, but it can also be, if not painful, it can be very embarrassing. But I ask them if they ever remember their moms and dads telling them something when they were young kids that they grew up to found to find out later on that it actually wasn't true. That in some cases, there was no truth to it at all. Almost every class in the 20 years plus years that I've been teaching at the college level, almost every class, including my high school students back in the 90s when I taught in uh, suburbs of Chicago, would raise their hand. Now, and it's okay, look, and everybody look around. You're not alone. All of us then remember at least one thing that our parents taught us as young kids that we found out later on wasn't true. Now, here's where it has to be, of course, volunteer only. How many of you care to share what your parents told you was A, and you found out later on it was actually B? Yeah, this is one. <laughs> Clearly, a vast majority of hands are, are pulled down faster than lightning itself. And, uh, you know, again, occasionally a student will be willing to volunteer. And oftentimes their examples are very good one. However, I'm never going to uh, paraphrase in this case, even what I learned from a student. Rather, I will share what I learned from my father about a concept in nature, ironically enough, I mentioned this earlier, called lightning. And it was a concept called heat lightning. And now, mind you, when I'm telling you what my father's explaining to me about heat lightning, which it turns out, folks, doesn't exist, at least in the, in the uh, context of what he explained to me when I was a young kid in the late 1970s, it's not that he was a, you know, kind of a no-brainer there that decided to try to satisfy my curiosity by explaining something away. My father was a nuclear physicist, a health physicist. He knew a lot about science. And I remember one time looking way off in the night sky, we were outside, and I saw flashes of light way in the distance. And I said, Dad, what is this? Isn't that lightning? But you see, when we saw the lightning, we didn't hear the thunder. So he said, yeah, that's what we call heat lightning, lightning with no thunder. Folks, in the physical world, you cannot have lightning without thunder. You cannot have that electrical charge that heats the atmosphere up north of 50,000 degrees and then flashes off and not have a reaction from the air around it that rushes in to fill in that vacuum created by the heat. That gives us thunder. And before you think you just somehow wound up on a science podcast instead of history, bear with me here. But he said, yeah, that's heat lightning. I said, well, Dad, is it dangerous? And I appreciate his answer then as much as I do now. I don't know. The fact of the matter is we do know. But you see, we didn't have the radar technology in those days to recognize that what then adults called heat lightning was actually seeing lightning so far off in the distance of a thunderstorm that we couldn't hear the thunder. Because as we know, light has the capacity to travel far greater distances than sound ever will. So that is, again, he remember him telling me that. So when did I learn otherwise? It was in high school. It was a high school chemistry professor, ironically enough, who died not long ago. When he explained about lightning, and I raised my hand, I said, well, professor, does that apply for both heat lightning and regular lightning? And he put down the chalk, and he said, who told you about heat lightning? I said, my father. What does your father do? I said, he's a physicist. 
How old's your dad? And I answered him. He said, I'm not trying to tell you your dad's wrong, but I will tell you your dad isn't right. Heat lightning is the lightning from a distant thunderstorm and is just as deadly. In fact, if not more deadly, because people tend not to consider it as dangerous as regular lightning. So regular lightning, lightning, it's all the same. And he said, here I can prove it. And rather than put you to sleep, in case I haven't done that already, he says, rather, you know, and rather to put you to sleep, then with his explanation, he proceeded to, pr- to prove to me in a way that I could not deny that heat lightning actually didn't exist. Of course, I went home that night, put the dinner dishes aside, and I said, Dad, explain to me again about heat lightning. And he proceeded to tell me what he told me years ago. And then I gave him my professor's response to that. And he said, yes, it seems as though that is turning out to be true. With the way radar technology is advancing, yes, we are looking at distant thunderstorms. You see, though, he was willing to change. And that's the key to our ability to educate ourselves and the pain that comes with it. One thing I did not share with you a few moments ago is that when I was sitting in that chair in that chemistry class and that professor was going on that heat lightning does not exist, it is a misnomer, I got angry. I felt like telling that teacher, how dare you? That's my dad. He's one of my first teachers along with my mom, of course. He's not wrong. He was wrong, but I will be the first to admit I wanted to fight that new knowledge. Now, bear with me then, as Dr. Peck unknowingly explains the mindset that the people of the Renaissance are going to have to embrace and why it becomes so painful. As he writes in The Road Less Traveled on page 193, He writes, and I'll be paraphrasing here, but to develop a broader vision, to educate ourselves, the human population has to be willing to forsake. And Dr. Apak actually uses the word to kill our narrower, older vision. In the short run, it is simply more comfortable not to do this, to stay where we are to keep using the same microcosmic map, to avoid suffering the death of cherished notions. However, the growth or the road to educating oneself, however, lies in the opposite direction. We have to begin by distrusting what we already believe. We have to actively seek the threatening and the unfamiliar. We have to deliberately challenge the validity of what we have previously been taught and held dear to us. The path to education, folks, lies through the questioning of, and he puts the word in italics, everything. And that ends on page 194. That, listeners, is what people of the Renaissance are going to start doing.
they are going to begin to question everything. So then, let's look then briefly at a couple of these examples of changes in the Renaissance. The first thing that we're going to look at in the next podcast is the printing press. This is what is arguably believed to be the greatest invention in the 1,000-year period from 1000 AD to 1999 AD was the printing press. When I begin the next podcast, I'll explain a quick experiment that I do with my students as I ask them to tell me in the 1,000-year time period of 1,000 to 1999, what is the greatest invention of humankind? Listen to what some of their answers are. It makes sense on the surface. So we're going to be looking at that uh, invention. And the other invention is arguably something that regulates your life far more than you probably ever want to admit. In fact, that invention is what's telling me that I need to talk about this in the next podcast, not this one. What is that invention? Well, I haven't got that far in the textbook. Tune in then for episode 29 when I start expanding on the impact of these two of the greatest inventions that kick off the age that we know as the Renaissance. So thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments or book recommendations you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, uh, as well, please leave me a review if you have the opportunity to do so. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.